What is going on, crypto family? So today we have the one and the only Charles Hoskinson, CEO of IOH King, coming on. Actually, no, he already did. We had a great chat. It wasn't typical at all. You know, you have your typical Cardano chats where he talks about ADA and all that kind of stuff, but nope, not here. This was a chill conversation where I let this brilliant, unique, and very interesting dude do most of the talking. And you'll get to see a very different side of Charles. Things that we discuss are things like, you know, him moving from Hawaii to Colorado, his favorite books, hobbies, stories about Bill Gates to Ulysses S. Grant, thoughts on Ethereum and even Vitalik, you know, Ethereum partnering with Bitcoin Cash, LibraCoin, MySpace, the Bitcoin Core devs, and run, honey man, run. That's right. <laughs> Run, honey, man, run. I know, it sounds crazy. I sound crazy saying it, but run, honey, man, run. You'll understand by the end of this what I'm talking about. So make sure you stick around to the end and wait for it. And yeah, run, honey, man, run. Just a friendly reminder, Crypto Beetle shows are never financial advice, recommendations, or trading strategies. The views expressed here are solely that of Robert Beatles and his guests. Robert Beatles is the co-founder of the Monarch Wallet host of Trading View Sessions, Crypto Beatles on YouTube, and on several entities. Robert's opinions here do not reflect that of those entities. Some information shared here may not actually be factual. These shows are for information and entertainment purposes only. Never invest a single Satoshi or penny in anything without first seeking the counsel and advice of a professional financial advisor. Robert Beatles is not a financial expert or advisor. Investing in anything is super dangerous. You can lose all of your money, so always trade at your own risk. And one last thing before we get into this, please help us grow the family. Give us a comment and review on the Apple or Google Play Store. It's super quick and easy. Just scroll down, click the little stars, comment, and just help us grow the fam. All right, catch you on the other side. What is going on, crypto family? So today we have the one and only Charles Hoskinson with us, the CEO of IOHK. Thanks a bunch, man, for taking time for us. Appreciate you, buddy. It's good to be on. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome, man. So tell us about yourself a little bit. You know, where are you from, man? You know, it seems like you came from another planet with this big brain. So, you know, tell us all about it, man. Where are you from? <laughs> uh, I'm from Hawaii, actually, originally. I was born in a little town called Makwa on the east side of Maui. And yeah, yeah. I hang loose, man. Awesome, uh, so, man. Uh, so mahalo to all of our Hawaiian fans. But, uh, you know, I lived there for the uh, first nine years of my life. And then I moved to Colorado and I've been there ever since, over 20 plus years. And I just love Colorado. I love the environment, love the culture. You know, it's a, kind of a blend of a little bit of everything. We got a bit of Wyoming, a bit of Texas, a bit of California. And what we try to do is take the best and, uh, you know, get, uh, you know, kick the worst out. You know, we, we send them over to Kansas or Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's yeah. a big difference, man. Big climate, and, you know, just, I guess, just land-wise, you know, from Maui being this isolated island of sorts out there, you know, in Hawaii and the Pacific, and then you've got uh, Colorado, no oceans. What, yeah. Why the drastic change? Oh, well, you know, I was nine and my parents moved and I uh, I could try to stay, but it's really hard to survive as a nine-year-old. <laughs> the rent is very high. You don't have the, the requisite job skills to be able to pay it. But uh, no, I, you know, actually I adapted quite well. My first year was hell because I was not used to the snow or the cold and uh, boy, that was interesting. But outside of that, you know, it was a, it was a good childhood. And I got to go up my grandpa's ranch in Montana. He had a ranch up Big Timber. So I tried to go up there whenever I could. And uh, that was about 650 acres, give or take. And it was just a wonderful place to, to be as a kid. And Colorado was just a great place to grow up with as well. And, you know, I got to go back to Hawaii from time to time. And, uh, you know, after I entered the professional world, I've, I've since traveled and traveled and traveled and traveled. And now I've gone to 52 countries. <laughs> 
which is just crazy, you know, if you really think about it. And they ask, well, you must have a lot of airline miles. And I say, yeah, I'm saving them up. Eventually, I'll buy a plane with them or something like that. <laughs> it's like that guy who got so many Pepsi points that he tried to buy a Harrier. <laughs> That's awesome, man. So yeah. you spend a lot of time on the ranch. You, you learn how to ride horses. What are you doing? Oh, here? yeah, yeah. I got horses and geese and chickens. They just start laying eggs and mini goats, getting some mini donkeys. Uh, you know, alpacas are on the way, uh, camels at some point. It's a proper ranch, man. I love it. Uh, I love it out here. I ride my ATV and ride the horses into the sunset. Uh, you know, Colorado is good for that. And it gets a little cold, but I tell you, those mountains with that sun on it when it sets is just great. Uh, you know, and it's a good lifestyle. What's really amazing about it is actually surprisingly cheap, all things considered. I have all these friends that live in like New York and Singapore and <laughs> I told them how much I pay for my ranch, and they're and they're like, we we can't even get a two bedroom condo in New York for that much. I was like, well, you're lost, man. You should be in Colorado. Uh, so that's uh, certainly a lot of fun, and a lot of a lot of fishing, and you know other things to do, and uh, it's a good respite because uh, I travel about 200, 250 days a year, and it's real tough to go through all that kind of travel and to to go through all that process, and to be able to come home somewhere where you know it's just peaceful and there's some nature and some mountains uh, is an invaluable thing. And I think it helps with the work-life balance that you have to have to have a tough job. And uh, every, every CEO who's worth their salt, that's really something that they try to create. And I'm glad that I have it. That's great. Yeah. Place to hang your hat and recharge, so to speak. So, I mean, aside from, you know, the ranch life and your geese and chickens and horses and all that kind of stuff, what else do you do for fun, man? Do you have any, uh, any other hobbies? You know, you skydive, you do anything like that? <laughs> yeah, I used to skydive. Actually, I'm getting into paramotoring, so that's going to be interesting. But uh, yeah, I used to play the piano too. I'm going to get back into that at some point. But there's uh, always time to do interesting things. Uh, you know, painting is always great. Draw. You start by learning how to draw, then you, you do painting. Uh, so that's always fun and uh, certainly helped George Bush. So I think it'll have a similar effect for me. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, there's also uh, just so many great books to read. I'm a big fan of biographies and history. My favorite author in, on the historical side is Ron Chernow. And then there's just tons of great books to, uh, that help expand your mind and think about the world, like books on model thinking or systems theory or, or so forth. And, uh, and every single one of them is just kind of a treasure trove of of pieces. And if you're clever, you can put the Lego together and then you can apply that towards business problems or other such things. And so I try to create a nice balance between leisure and downtime that still is productive and contributes to business. I used to be a mathematician. I wasn't a particularly good one. I never published anything <laughs> worth anything. I still do read math books from time to time. And, uh, you know, one of these days I have this fantasy that I'll just retire and go back into mathematics and, and be a great mathematician and solve great problems. But uh, as I get older, the, the probability of that tends to decline fairly rapidly year by year. But, you know, the dream is still there. And that's, uh, that's always fun. That's funny that you're using math in mathematics to basically calculate the probability of you going back into mathematics. So, <laughs> Right. Now that's just common sense, right? You know, usually you do your best work in your twenties. I'm 31. So I was like, yeah, okay, maybe, you know, if you get lucky or something like that. But, uh, you know, I still, you know, we still do publish papers with IOHK. We've published more than 40 academic papers and they're very mathy. There's a, a lot to them. There's a lot of infrastructure there and, you know, beautiful combinatorial proofs and other things like that. So it's fun to read them and it's fun to participate in the scientific process and follow that along. We definitely have solved some very significant problems in our industry. For example, we solved the proof of stake problem and that's nearly done. And we followed that thread all the way through 
and we're very confident in that solution. Um, we you know, have a really good idea about how to handle side chains, and that was an original contribution to space. Our PL work that we've done at the company is second to none, you know, like uh, Yella, Plutus, and these things. And we actually brought like really, really good PL people with great age indexes, like 75 or higher, and we got them into the system and, and said, hey, let's go tear it up. So, you know, it's, it's fun to do that. And you know, it makes you feel like you're still a researcher or, you know, still actually in academia, even though I, I, I'm, not, I'm not writing these papers or you know, any of those things. But it's a delusion. You know, it's that song, Tell Me Lies, Tell Me Sweet Little Lies. <laughs> so I get to do that. And, uh, you know, that placates the, the urges to uh, be a proper mathematician again. And then you just, you know, you still get to stay in contact with people. Like we had Stephen Wolfram, for example, at our conference. And He's, he's one of those guys that's just so fun to meet because he created Mathematica and Wolfram Alpha. And, and so we got to talk about some you know, things about computation and Leibniz and, and so forth. Uh, but yeah, that's generally what I do. You know, I read biographies and I travel and uh, you know, definitely doing some aerial stuff soon with paramotoring. So that's going to be fun. I used to climb uh, and I'm trying to get back into that. In fact, at our company, we've been debating doing something batshit crazy. We've been thinking like, <laughs> Let's go down to Antarctica and let's bring the Iceman with us. Do you know who the Iceman is? No. <laughs> you haven't heard of the Iceman. Holy what? shit. I'm not Hold talking on. about Chuck Liddell. I'm talking about, <laughs> I'm talking about I'm talking about Wim Hof. Man. Okay, so this dude climbed Mount Everest in his shorts, and he's the only man alive that's ever run an Arctic marathon barefoot and with no shirt on, no coat during the winter. So he's like immune to the cold. So he goes on these extreme excursions where you just go with him and climb a mountain in your underwear in the winter. And so we said, well, shit, let's do that. So, so we're, we're like trying to put a team of people together where we're going to go to Antarctica, climb Mount Terror with Wim Hof, which is a terrible idea unto itself, but it's a really cool mountain name. It's probably not that tall, but it's like, it's a cool name. Right. And then, uh, and then just get as far up as we can. And then we'll paramotor back to base camp. So we'll fly back to base camp with the Iceman. So those are the kinds of things that, that we kind of, after we're really tired at 3.30 in the morning and just nothing makes sense anymore, we say, wouldn't it be cool to do this? And then we say, yeah, let's, let's go do that. And, uh, and so we're going to go chase it. So Did you ever see Mr. Deeds? Mr. Deeds, no. No? Oh, okay. Because anyways, his uncle, you know, climbs the top of Everest, you know, thought it'd be a great thing to do. He just, he's up there frozen, you know, with his hand up in the air, you know. <laughs> Billionaire guy just decided to do it one day. Well, that, that's why we're bringing the Iceman because he's immune to the cold. So if like something well, you're not. happens, he can grab us and take us you know, back. He's the Iceman. Uh, he's awesome. actually a very accomplished mountaineer as well. He used to climb the, the Pyrenees all the, all the time when he was younger. But anyway, so things like that, you know, you got to keep it creative. You got to, you always got to do something new, whether it be new animals or new experiences or new books or traveling or flying or things like that. And, you know, and then on the the professional side, we just work hard. You know, I work 80 to 100 hours a week. And I really don't have a personal life. I don't have many friends. <laughs> you know, I don't. Yeah. I you have lots of fans and lots of people there in your corner. Exactly. You know, and but but I've, I know some rock stars. Like we had CCR and Steve Miller for our, our conference in uh, the IOHK Summit. And, you, you know, the best lesson you can learn from rock stars is do not associate your fans for your friends and the ones who want to be your friend you have to be worried about them because you're gonna have the fatal attraction ice pick <laughs> you take care of them you know you be respectful but uh, there's certainly a, a professional distance you have to keep yeah there's some good people out there for sure but yeah if you're right there's definitely something you got to watch out for and you mentioned I've, I've experienced it firsthand <laughs> yeah. gotcha so <laughs> well maybe that's why you live in wyoming <laughs> so Colorado. Colorado. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then you've mentioned books a couple of times, you know, what's, what's the one that's really stuck out the most, you know, to you, that's kind of been the most impactful that you recommend to others. 
Well, it just depends on the topic. I mean, if it's technical, non-technical. You had to pick one book, just like that's your go-to. Well, you, you know, if you're an entrepreneur and you really want to be successful and, you know, you're looking for some inspiration, I'd say probably one of the most useful books you can read is uh, Ulysses S. Grant from uh, Ulysses from uh, Ron Chernow, you know, or it might be called Grant. But anyway, Ron Chernow Grant. And basically, it's the story of Ulysses S. Grant. And that guy, he was never supposed to be famous. He was never supposed to be important. At the breakout of the Civil War, he was basically a, a former captain in the army who had been kicked out for drinking. And by the end of it, he was the commander of the army and the heir apparent to the presidency. So he went from like nobody to one of the most important people in the entire country in just a very short period of time, about four years. Uh, and if you look at the arc of his life, it was just this cyclic thing where he kept trying to get something and then it just got bashed down and trying to get something got bashed down, but he stuck with it. And he kept his integrity and his principles. And uh, even towards the end of his life, after the presidency, you figure, okay, well, once you're president, general of the army, kind of get your shit figured out. You kind of got everything figured out. But no, he got took by a, a Ponzi scheme, lost everything, got diagnosed with mouth cancer. And then he was like dying. And then he said, well, I can't be, leave my wife to be destitute. So he uh, partnered with Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, and he agreed to write his autobiography. So he had to like race against the clock. He was dying while writing this autobiography and uh, he finished it just a few days before he died and it became a bestseller and it got his family up out of poverty. So just a hell of a guy, really just a hell of a guy. And, uh, you know, any history is so rich. There's so many amazing figures like, you know, Augustus, for example, back in, in Rome where, you know, he's like basically Julius Caesar's adopted son. Caesar's doing pretty good. He's dictator for life. Then he gets stabbed to death. And I was like 19 and, and he used to say, well, how the hell do I figure all this stuff out? And the you know, Octavian like systematically killed everybody in his way and then said, okay, now I'm going to pretend like I have no political power and just walk away, uh, but then still actually be basically a dictator. Uh, so it's like so much great, cool stuff in history where, you know, there's these wonderful tales and stories and a lot of these battles and a lot of these events were just one thing. Like in the case of Grant, he was just happened to be friends with a congressman and who, who grew up in the same town as him. And so that congressman was just like relentless in trying to get Grant a commission to be a colonel. Uh, and they eventually broke down and say, okay, he's a drunkard, but we'll try it. And the same for, you know, Augustus. There's like a few battles where if they went just a little bit the other way, the Roman Empire would have been totally different. Augustus would have never been emperor. Uh, so history is just phenomenal. And it's uh, tremendously fun to read. It's tremendously fun to think about. It's really also fun to play the what if game and say, well, what if it went differently? You know, what if those ships didn't freeze in Scandinavia? You know, we'd probably all be speaking Danish, you know, instead of English. Or, you know, what if uh, the, the Spanish Armada didn't get destroyed? You know, we'd probably be speaking Spanish instead of English. You know, there's like a whole bunch of litany of what if questions you can play. And it goes all the way back to like the, a Hittite king trying to marry his son off to the Queen of Egypt and had the ship not sunk. Uh, the Hittites would have absorbed Egypt and then probably have taken over the Middle East and then Europe, and then there wouldn't have been a Roman Empire. Have been, we would all be speaking Hittite, and there would be no Latin. Like So little things like that. And uh, it, it really helps when you try to put what you do as an entrepreneur into context of history, because then you realize that these companies like Microsoft and Google and Facebook and Apple, at one time, they were also subject to that one little decision, and it went either one way or the other way, and they just found a way to get through it. So there's a bit of luck. Uh, there was a bit of persistence and tenacity, and there was just a bit of a tolerance for, you know, the brutality of, of just the effort. Yeah, life's little moments and choices that define, exactly. 
define the future, right? <laughs> the present. Speaking of that, do you believe in, I guess, um, alternative universes? You know, since we're in the present now, and you being, you know, so theoretical, do you believe in the possibility of ultimate, or I guess, alternative dimensions and things like that? Well, you know, there's plenty of physicists that do that multi-dimension stuff, and I guess we, you know, I guess we have like time crystals now, and we're doing quantum teleportation, and there's like, uh, and I guess string theory is what is it up to eleven dimensions? I mean. How's all this stuff work? I have no idea. I'm a mathematician, not a physicist. <laughs> the whole reason you become a mathematician is because you want to stay away from practical things in life. <laughs> you want to you be like, let's just look at this one pattern and prove that this pattern holds or this, you know, that this conjecture is true. And they say, well, what happens if you solve it? Like from us, last theory was like, well... You know, it's great proof. And, and they said, but what's the application? And you say, you're missing the point if you have to ask the application. So if you want to do applications, become an engineer or a physicist, and, you know, then you can kind of conjecture how time and space and reality is structured. And, you know, I guess there is some traction for multiverses now. Uh, was it uh, Sean Carroll's written about it? And, uh, Penrose has written about it. A litany of other physicists are always talking about these things. Uh, the problem is that, like all good science, you have to, when you make a claim about something, have embedded within that claim a ability to falsify it. So this is the problem with string theory, and this is the problem with a lot of the higher physics, is that they have elegant, beautiful mathematics, and there's self-consistency within that model. Uh, but, you know, the reality is that that doesn't actually have to conform to reality. So I'll give a great example in mathematics. So they have, we have this thing called the axiom of choice. Very innocuous little axiom. It says, you know, if you have a set, you can pick an element out of it. Uh, and, and so you'd think, oh, uh, yeah, sure, I should be able to do that. That's a fair axiom. But then there's this paradox called the Banach-Tarski paradox that says if you accept the axiom of choice, then you can take a ball, you can break it apart into a lot of pieces, and then put it back together. But when you put it back together, instead of having one, you have two. And you're like, but that's not reality. I shouldn't be able to do that. They say, well, you can because of this. And then you say, oh, so if I accept this very innocuous, innocent little axiom, then suddenly I have a, a system that violates reality. And so it's mathematically consistent, the system. You can do these things. But on the other hand, the system is now divorced from life as it is. So physics is much the same way. You know, if you, if you look at... Um, if you look at like all these multidimensional theories or string theory or other things, you, know, you actually start deconstructing it. You say, okay, well, I'll give you mathematical consistency, but then give me falsifiability. Give me a test that would I'd be able to run to prove what you're saying is right or wrong. Like when Higgs said, you know, there should be a, this thing called the Higgs boson. They said, okay, well, we know how to look for it. So then they built a giant super collider in Switzerland. <laughs> they ran for it for a long time and they found it, right? And they had the ability to falsify it if, if they didn't, and there were things they could have done for that. So uh, you always have to be careful about these types of things. And actually, this is very true in the cryptocurrency space as well. You'll hear tons of terms like, you know, secure or decentralized or performant or scalable. Or, and, and the first thing you should think to yourself is, this is a meaningless word. Like, what is decentralized? EOS is decentralized. Bitcoin is decentralized. Uh, you know, Ripple is decentralized. Well, what's the difference between 10 nodes and 100 nodes? What's the difference between 1,000 nodes, which are fixed and you don't get to control them, and 10 nodes that rotate? Which one's more decentralized? You know? So uh, these are terms that require more infrastructure to actually be meaningful, and then they require you to actually build a scaffolding where you can actually prove whether those are right or wrong. 
the fundamental issue in our space is we actually don't have that scaffolding, and those terms are not well-defined. They've become marketing buzz terms. So one of the things we do at IOHK is we just write foundational papers, and we say, all right, what's a secure blockchain? What's a ledger? You know, what, what the hell is that? What does that mean? You know, what do we do with that? And so you think to yourself, okay, well, you know, all right, well, maybe we'll have some definitions and we can construct it and say, as long as you follow these particular definitions, then that's a secure ledger. Okay, that's a start. And then you, you have a way of knowing what, which one is and what one isn't. Then you take the next step and say, well, uh, can you create that with the things that we normally do in Bitcoin? Like, for example, with proof of work, does proof of work create a secure ledger or not? And you say, oh, okay, maybe it actually does. And so, all right, now we have a basis, like, Bitcoin does this and it creates that. So now we have a source of truth. And then you see what other types of systems can create a secure ledger? Can, you know, a BFT protocol create it? Paxos create it? Can proof of stake create it? And so forth. They have a security target for your model and it's falsifiable. You know, you can claim something and people can find a counterexample or they can try to show you where your proofs are wrong. And if your proofs are right, then you can say it's actually provably secure. It actually works and so forth. But that's a long, expensive process. Like Ouroboros, for example, our POS, we started working on that in 2015. And we're just starting to finish the entire research agenda for the first major sprint. It took four years of incredibly hard work and lots of papers, lots of peer review, and we're submitting the last two papers that are really going to capstone it in September to Eurocrypt. Hopefully they get in. Uh, and, you know, are we done? No, we still have to implement a lot of the infrastructure, but at least we actually understand proof of stake now at, you know, every different dimension from the incentive side to basically how an adversary can break the system, how to recover from disaster events like you know, uh, spikes of dishonest majority, how to bootstrap without a checkpoint, how to be in a semi-synchronous network model because clocks are sometimes unreliable, how to decouple the clock from the protocol and have a different group actually create a notion of time within the system, how to generate random numbers fast and efficiently in the system. Each and every one of these is a big, hard problem in its own right. And there's a lot that can go wrong. And so we had to systematically write little papers along the way, basically explaining how to do all these things. And it's not sexy work. You know, nowhere in the way is anybody reading that paper be like, oh, yeah, or more Chronos. <laughs> yeah, that really gets me off. Wow. You read bad papers. It's like rubbing your nipples while reading the paper. It's not happening. No, it's not happening at all. It well, is that. Well, like they say, you know, well, you know plan, not planning is just basically planning to fail, right? So it sounds right. like you guys are doing a ton of planning. You guys are, you know, laying down all the foundation, making sure that everything, you know, makes sense before you guys actually implement it, Right. 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 You know, and, and it's a process and we're getting there. And uh, and we actually have implemented a lot of stuff. You know, one of the biggest misconceptions about the Cardano project is that somehow we're these academics who live up in an ivory tower and we just do all this science and black magic. And then one day we wake up and say, it is solved. And we show up with our stone tablets and be like, <laughs> these are the commands from God. No, we don't do that. Actually, it's quite the opposite. So there's this beautiful, iterative, agile process where stuff leaves the lab and gets specified and coded and then goes back to the lab and then goes back to specification. And there's this beautiful tug of war that happens. And we have actually two teams. One team is following very rigorous, formal methods approach. And they've been working at that for about a year. And then another team that is following an iterative, agile, extreme programming style model. 
uh, like that's the Rust team, and uh, they're every week cutting a release and you know get it to the customer as quickly as possible. They're both following kind of a common set of um, formal specifications, but at the end of the day, uh, you know they, they're very different software development approaches. And we ship probably more software than most projects in the entire space. In fact, we're number one for GitHub commits. And whenever we say that, then people say, "Oh, well, you can game that." I say, well, "Fuck you, read my commits." <laughs> don't just say it look at the commits and tell me which ones are vanity commits no they're all meaningful a lot of them are big commits and they contain a lot of stuff and you can just see the enormous amount of progress i mean building a cryptocurrency onto itself from scratch is a huge endeavor Indeed. building a cryptocurrency based upon peer-reviewed academic research that's actually innovating creating new protocols is really hard building it in a way that's secure and it works and doesn't have major bugs and doesn't lose your money is even harder and then building it in a functional programming language where there's a much smaller set of developers to work with is even harder. And the fact that not only we've been able to do that, but do that relatively quickly, all things considered, is a testimony to the quality of the company and the, and the product and project management. But of course, you know, here's the problem. If the price goes down, then that's the only metric that a lot of people follow and they think, ah, because the price went down, you're not doing your job, you're not working, you're incompetent. And if we don't immediately ship something that they view would increase the price, i.e. Shelly or Gogan or something like that, then it means that we're incompetent. But, you know, I say, okay, let's say Shelly ships and it's great and it's magical. It does everything we claim and the price doesn't go up. Do you think the people who are like, when Shelly, when Shelly, when Shelly, will suddenly just get off her back and be like, well, they have a working product now and everything's great and everything's fine. <laughs> <Going> no, <around. laughs> they'll, be like, they'll be saying the same things. No working product, useless cryptocurrency, terrible development process, Charles is incompetent because it's their decision factor is, is this making me rich or not? It's you a know? casino mentality, man. That's what exactly. you get these people in the space right now and all they care about is just speculation. They really don't care a lot about the tech. There's a handful, don't get me wrong, there's a yeah, small percentage. I'll give the Bitcoin maximalists some credit because the vast majority of things in the space that exist right now are copies of a copy and they're not really bringing real innovation sure. and they're by teams that fully don't understand the technology they're working with. Like when zero knowledge proofs came out and we actually had snark based privacy, we saw a wave of these ventures just forking Zcash or something like that. And you'd go talk to their engineers and you'd say, okay, explain to me how snarks work. And they have no clue. I copy and pasted it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it exactly. So I'm saying, okay, so you're good enough to fork a project and bootstrap it, and create it. but you have no idea how the underlying technology works at all. So how can you innovate? How can you actually bring something new to the table? How can you actually produce something? And if you actually want to innovate, that takes time. It takes about three to five years to go from research to development, bring things out. We start 2015. It's just getting good now in 2019 and 2020. It'll get great. So, you know, a five-year time horizon was a very realistic period of time to do deep R&D and actually bring something compelling new to the table. And we have so many innovations. I mean, we're going to have the best light clients. We have chimeric ledgers, so extended UTXO and Ethereum-style accounts can live on the same ledger. Great smart contract model that's significantly better than Ethereum's model. We have a really good consensus protocol, which I would argue is the best in industry, and it's really starting to work its way out of the lab. You know, we have a very clear understanding of how to define ledger rules and add them rapidly to our systems. Uh, so, you know, there's just hundreds of little innovations that have come along the way as a consequence of a clean room first principles approach and a consequence of bringing people who weren't in the cryptocurrency space into the cryptocurrency space to think about our problems. It means new minds, new approaches, fresh ideas that are very different and distinct uh, from everybody else. The only downside to that is it does take time. It doesn't take an enormous amount of money. You don't need to go raise $4 billion and, 
and you know do crazy things. It, you know, it's, it's like a DARPA project. You know, you, it's about sixty million to hundred million, somewhere in that time frame. Is enough to be, yeah in five years is enough to be able to do something significant. This is what happened with Siri. If you have an iPhone, you have Siri on it. It came from a DARPA project. It was called Kalo, cognitive assistant that learns and organizes. And they had this crazy goal. They they wanted to create a personal assistant that was kind of like Cortana, and yeah. make you Spartan, right? And it didn't really work out. But the guy who ran the program like immediately set up Siri, and then Apple bought them, and that became Siri. So this is really how you get it done. You, you do deep R and D. You do a high risk, high return project. You run it for a while and eventually it converges and you don't get 100%. You get about 70% or whatever. Just depends on how ambitious you were. But that thing you got is revolutionary. It's new. The world's never seen it before. And it really does solve problems. And it gives you a great scaffolding to get the other 30% if you're willing to invest the time and you have the money over an arc of time. So, you know, we're actually making great progress and we're very happy with the way things have turned out. We're very happy with the growth of the community. I mean, being in the top 15 is hard, there's 3,000 plus projects running around. Uh, yeah. You know, getting liquidity is hard. Competing with these guys is hard. You know, a lot of these guys don't fight fair. They hire FUD and trolls. They they have they manipulate the market. They invest their own project capital to artificially increasing the market capitalization to you know spike above you. There's all kinds of chicanery. Bots. <laughs> yeah, bots. Yeah, bots all the time. All kinds of like for example, I just left Twitter. You know, just. To, because I'm going on vacation and I just wanted to have a fucking break. The minute I left Twitter, I, my uh, social media guy came and said, people think you have cancer. People think you have heart disease. People think you're not doing well. You're falling apart. And I said, where the hell did they get that idea from? There's like six things on 4chan. There's tons of things on Reddit, tons of things floating around Twitter. And it was either Charles is sick, Charles is dying, uh, Charles is being fired, or exit scam. These were what they were saying all to manipulate the price. And on the other direction, there were rumors floating around for a while that Amazon is buying Cardano. Like, where the fuck did that come from? I'd be the first to know. Bezos would be hanging out my farm. He'd see a picture of us together walking around with cool sunglasses on or something, you know, because he's a baller. But no, you know, it's like that, none of these things are true, but people do it because they want to manipulate the price. And of course, if the price is your metrics of success, you know, how I'm doing is has nothing to do with our ability to deliver. It has everything to do with how you know, some manipulated market comes out. You know, it's uh, it's like professional wrestling or something. It's like you really can't win. It's whatever they've decided is good for ratings. And damn, a lot of people just don't play fair. But yeah. when you talk about you know you delivering, are you actually coding yourself as well? I mean, no, I know no, no, you don't do that. Don't do that. First, never never trust a mathematician with code. That's just a, <laughs> even if we can write good code, you know, then the problem is you go too far in the other direction, and then you get very obsessed with elegance and perfection and beauty because. Code is like proofs, you know, if sure. you're actually writing uh, mathematical code, like type theory stuff and functional stuff or, you know, dependent types, you really can make code look beautiful. And, and so they get obsessed with this. Nothing ever gets done. Uh, but no, you, you hire professional engineers. And you're the creator of Haskell, don't you? Yeah, we do. One of them. Yeah, there's several people who worked on it. So you hire professional uh, you know, engineers and to each their own. You know, Every one of them brings something unique and different to the table. And really what matters is the processes. You know, engineers are not fungible, but they do live within systems. And even if you have an ex incredible engineer, if you put them in a bad system, it'll eat them alive. And if you take an average engineer or even a substandard engineer, you put them in a good system, either they wash out completely or they just get better. It's like right. putting a nice dog with a bunch of angry dogs. That dog's going to turn angry real quick. Uh, you know, so, uh, so, you know, I don't code and I don't want to code. I, I look at the architecture and we do have deep technical discussions and we talk about deadlines and processes and these things. And I can read the code that they write. Uh, and that's certainly fun. 
But I think the space is, again, too in love with this idea of the lone samurai, like Vitalik writes code and Dan writes code. So therefore, every cryptocurrency founder must be super technical and write lots of code and be day-to-day working alongside the engineers. And if they're not doing that, then everything goes to hell. And I was like, okay, they have one great company uh, in the last 25 years where uh, that was a prerequisite for the company's success long-term. You know, you just can't. Yeah, most of them were good at marketing or business development, things Even like that. Even if they were coders like Larry Page or Bill Gates, they stopped. Gates, but they Bill stopped. Gates bought Microsoft for the most part. <laughs> no, 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 no. He, he, was, he was the real deal. Bill Gates was a, a brilliant software developer. He started Microsoft at 19 with uh, Paul Allen. Great story, actually. It was in 1975 or 76. So what happened was that Paul came into Bill's dorm room. He was a mathematics major at Harvard. And he said oh my God, you got to see what the Altair computers has. It has the Intel 8080 and uh, 8086, I think. And, and look, it's fully programmable, but they don't have a basic for it. There's no program. Language. It's a toy right now. You know, you have the, the hardware, but there's no way to write software for this you know, beautiful general purpose CPU. And then Bill started thinking about it for a bit. And he's like, well, we could write that. And he said, well, yeah, well, we've never written a programming language before. We don't know how to do any of this stuff. No, we can figure it out. So he goes and talks to this old white bearded programming language guy and he, then they send a message to the Intel, say, can we get the specs for this processor? But they don't actually have the computer. So they wrote a whole programming language, and they wrote the whole thing from scratch without ever testing it for a computer that they didn't have. And they were going completely off of reference manuals, hoping to God that there wasn't a typo or anything. And so then, uh, you know, uh, Paul Allen flew out to New Mexico, which is where MITS was, the company that made Altair, with this teletype tape. And actually, if you ever want to see what started Microsoft, just Google Microsoft teletype Bill Gates, and like the first image will be that tape that they created. And actually on the plane, uh, Alan realized they screwed up on the software and he had to pull out a pen out of his pocket, look at the teletype tape, kind of from memory, and then punch holes in it just to fix it. So then they get to MITS, he plugs in the teletype tape into the Altair computer, pushes a button, runs the tape, the lights start blinking, and he types onto the command line, two plus two, and it returns four. And it's like, it was just like amazing moment for him. He said, oh my God, it works. There's so much that has to happen for that thing to come back as four. So they wrote all these simple programs afterwards, but uh, both Bill and, and Paul were brilliant, brilliant developers. And for about the first five, 10 years of the company, you know, they, they did heavily code and do these things. Uh, but, you know, it was just a different time. You know, at the 1970s, there were no notions of software companies. The, nobody understood how to do these types of things. And, uh, you know, well, and software wasn't considered to be a valuable asset. So when you went to a company like IBM and said, oh, yeah, we want to keep the rights to the operating system, they'd be like, yeah, sure, whatever. Nowadays, they'd be like, what kind of brain damage did you get on the plane ride over proposing this deal to us? You know, no, no, we're going to have a very serious conversation. So and there's a lot of luck to that, but there was a lot of hard work. But the point is when they actually got to a point where they had real customers not just little businesses or Apple or something, but like real products and market with hundreds of thousands of customers. What made Microsoft so powerful was systems. They put in these beautiful systems that allowed them to very rapidly build things. And Bill wasn't writing any code at that point. It's the same for Apple. You know, it, what made them successful wasn't even the code. It was the logistics and the supply chains and the ability to produce 20 million of something and be able to brand it and sell it at such a high markup and get consistency with their suppliers and so forth. So yeah, I could have sworn I read back in the day that Bill Gates bought, you know, from, from some unsuspecting smart dude, you know. I no, no, that, that was DOS. And so what happened was that IBM yeah. came to Bill and they asked him for an operating system. He passed on it and he recommended a company. 
And then they had, IBM went to this husband and wife team and they asked for an operating system and the husband and wife team refused to sign the non-disclosure agreement. So then IBM came back to Microsoft and they're like, you wasted our time, you bastard. It was like, I'm so sorry, I will do it myself. We'll write an operating system for you. And then he turned to Paul and he's like, Paul, do we have anybody who has an OS? And Paul's like, I got this guy. He has this thing called DOS. It's, it's pretty good. So he goes over to uh, this guy and gives him like $50,000 and buys DOS from him. Well, they were like, oh, that poor guy, he lost DOS. Well, no, actually, he became a Microsoft employee later on. He got stock options, got crazy-ass rich. So that, that was, you know, how they got into the OS business. But, I mean, they still had to do Windows and all these other things and actually, you know, compete and do all the business side. And it was just a brutal schlock for all of them. So, you know, it, 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 there's the fiction and then there's the reality. of sure. And uh, the reality is often not quite as sexy, but it sure as hell is strange and hard and it does require a lot of commitment. In the cryptocurrency space, the code, unfortunately, doesn't matter as much as the user experience, the adoption strategy, uh, and your ability just to articulate the case for why your software is special and what your software is going to do for the world and who your software benefits uh, and why that software is actually going to achieve adoption. Right now, we're still living in a speculator's paradise, and so it doesn't matter if you have high transaction volume, low transaction volume. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of people, little people. There's not a lot of natural demand for these things relative to their price. So there's a big speculative differential that exists between the cryptocurrency and, uh, the, uh, and the actual base utility of the system. Ethereum was one of the first platforms to come out where there was at least something there. You know, smart contracts enabled the ICO revolution, enabled MakerDAO, all these kinds of things. So that's great. At least we have something, but you know, it, one viral app broke it. CryptoKitties destroyed it. So it shows you we have a very big delta between where we need to be to be truly infrastructure that people can rely upon and use, and where we're currently at. And so, you know, what we're trying to do is figure out the theory behind what's even possible. Like, if you really want to have a billion-person system, can you do that and keep the principles of Bitcoin? Or are you going to have to give up on some of the decentralization and so forth? That's why basic research is so important. Yeah, speaking of you know the decentralized you know aspects of Bitcoin, I remember hearing you say one time that basically Cardano will be a hundred times more decentralized than Bitcoin. Is that uh, something that uh, still holds true today? And and what do you think about the actual Bitcoin core team that's actually you know working on the code and what their what their power is to Bitcoin or for Bitcoin? Well, you know one of the one of the reasons why I create altcoins is I never felt. And this is my personal opinion. Sure. You know, I never felt a, a warmness or inclusiveness with the Bitcoin core developers. They say, oh, yeah, anybody can submit a BIP. Anybody can do a pull request. Anybody can contribute. And it's definitely true that a lot of people have. And there's certainly a very brilliant, great group of there. But there's just certain tribes within the Bitcoin core developers. And to me, I've just never found a way to really efficiently get along with them. Even when I'm solving or working on problems that are tremendously useful to them. For example, the Nipapaos construct that Dionysus Zindros created. Nipapaos, non-interactive proofs of proof of work, not only solved the sidechains problem that Blockstream's been chasing for a while. They <laughs> you just said you, why. <laughs> That's why they, right there. You yeah, know who Bitcoin Core is, right? <laughs> yeah, but, but you know, at the end of the day, uh, they, they could just take it because it's open source and, and embrace it and pretend like they invented it. Uh, you know, the fly client guys are doing pretty good there. But, uh, uh, but, but it gives you also great light clients, the best light clients in the, uh, in the world. So, you know, you think about these things, you say to yourself, okay, well, you know, if it's not an inclusive environment and uh, you create all these great innovations, they never seem to work their way into Bitcoin Core. And also just how slow they move, 
I mean, right now they're having a big thing about Schnorr SIGs. It's a 20-year-old signature scheme. If your big innovation for the year is that you found a way to adopt a 20-year-old piece of cryptography uh, and you're not really fundamentally changing the characteristic of the system, then to me that that's not really fast enough for the Darwinian environment that we live in. So I, it's much more exciting to be in the altcoin space and there's a lot of things that you can do. Certainly a lot of downsides to it. So many scams, you know, ICOs, all sure. these things. But on the other hand, it's the only place you can really be where you have total freedom to dream of an entirely new system. The other umbrage that I take with some of the Bitcoin cultures is that maximalism is very toxic in certain circles where how just many because, Bitcoin core devs, you know, people that are actually on the team, the devs, how many of them does it take to actually implement a bit, you know, like a bit protocol change? I, w- I wouldn't be able to tell you that because it doesn't, it's not a raw number. You know, these things are always social. And even let's say there's consensus amongst the devs. Remember, you have other masters. You have people maintain wallets. You have the uh, miners. There's so many different stakeholders and constituencies in that ecosystem. And there's a cultural inclination with this entire setup towards basically uh, stability and predictability as opposed to innovation. So if your key driver is don't fuck it up and just you know stay the course, then you're gonna have upgrades every year to three years. If your key driver is we have to catch up, we have to innovate, we gotta move quickly, you're willing to take more risks, also you have less to lose. I mean, what happens if a billion dollar market cap cryptocurrency blows up? It's a local tragedy, it's happened many times, we move on. What happens if Bitcoin blows up? It's an existential threat to the entire cryptocurrency industry, and it's something that would take us quite a bit of time uh, to work our way through. So, you know, given those parameters, you say to yourself, all right, well, you know, let's take it slow. So what does it mean for me? I, I can be part of a super political process that's super slow and super painful, and then eventually you have to pick a side, let's say SegWit, then the big blockers hate you. Then you pick the big blockers. Then you, you know, you're on that side. Then Craig Wright shows up and you don't like him. So <laughs> then he has to like fork again. And then you're like, oh, fuck, I'm getting pounded from both sides. Or you can be the altcoin space and just say, hey, I have a blank slate. We have a beautiful community. People really believe in what we're doing, really want to innovate. And let's go just chase that. My point about maximalism, though, is... You know, it would be great if they just said, hey, they're doing their things. That's great. Let's see how it turns out. We wish them well. We have a great relationship then. But no, they say all the time on Twitter, you do not have a right to exist. You're a scammer. You're a horrible person. This is all about the tokens and exit. And, you know, it's like, okay, so if you question our fundamental right to exist, if you question our competency, if you say that we're only doing this to make money, then how do we work with you? How do we collaborate with you? How do we have a relationship with you? How do we even have a discussion with you? You know, there's no, there's no common ground there. There's a fundamental lack of respect. And then you say, okay, well, we'll just have to go in a different direction. And I hope to God that you guys can keep number one market cap because if Bitcoin ever loses that, what is the compelling reason to go back? You know, the only reason Bitcoin is Bitcoin is because it's Bitcoin. It's number right. one. But if something displaces it and goes to number five, you'd say, does it win on performance? No, it takes an hour for a transaction to settle. Does it win on cost of operation? No, mining is horrendously expensive and very, very uh, you know, energy intensive. Uh, does it win on functionality and features? No, it's horrific to deploy things on that system. And you say, oh, what about security? I say, well, if the price goes down, less mining happens, so your security starts diminishing, right? So it doesn't win in any of the competitive categories. It wins because it's the most valuable token. 
you know, and so that's a very dangerous position to be in. It's almost like MySpace back in the day where they said, it doesn't matter how bad the user experience gets. It doesn't matter how many pedophiles are trying to sleep with your 12-year-old daughter with our platform. Fuck all of you. We have 100 million people and everybody's friends with Tom. So, so Tom. Uh, I, miss Tom. I miss Tom too, man. He's living in Hawaii taking pictures there. He's, like, He's with Jeff Bezos wearing cool sunglasses. Yeah, exactly. Right. He's having a great life. So, you know, so you say to yourself, oh, okay. Yeah. We're never going to lose. Right. Cause we have hundred million people. And then somebody came by and said, yeah, you do right now, but you're not going to go any further. You've, you've created a toxic environment. So you really can't grow beyond your bubble. And while, you know, you might get a little bit more vanity at some point, somebody's going to come and sweep you out. You know, because they, they have a way to get real users. Like, for example, with Cardano, our entire adoption strategy, for most part, comes from the fact that we have access to governments and big companies in the developing world. And very soon, next few years, things are going to occur to bring millions of people into the blockchain space. So whoever has those relationships, those contracts, will be able to take those millions of people and make a decision of what platform do you want to put them in? And am I going to put them in Bitcoin? Am I going to put them in Ethereum and give, give Uncle V some more people? No, I'm going to put them into Cardano, right? You know, and, uh, and you know, that's just common sense. So we have a pretty good strategy and we have a strategy to get more users than Bitcoin has. Now, you can question whether it's, it's executable or if it's too expensive or it'll take too much time. It's like, sure, those are differences of opinion. Those are good, legitimate questions, but at least there's something there. You look at Bitcoin, you say, what is your adoption strategy? And nobody knows. You know, are you fuck the system, burn everything to the ground, we're cypherpunks and we're going to take the dollar down and be a new thing? Are we, uh, you know, just a a store of value and this is like digital gold and it's always going to be around and it's a digital commodity? Is this a true payment system and you imagine this killing SWIFT and replacing the international settlement systems? I mean, there's so many different ways you could look at it and there's these little tribes and none of them have actually won. So there's really no leadership or direction or focus in Bitcoin other than it's really valuable and we'd like to possess it. So maybe it'll end up being a great store of value, but it's not going to have a lot of utility otherwise, and it's really not going to do much otherwise than just being a secure ledger that is a good place to store hashes and, you know, these types of things. So, you know, I like being in the altcoin space because I don't have to deal with any of that. It's so much more relaxing. I can just focus on our mission, our values, our goals, Go try to get adoption. If we get it right, we're Facebook to my, MySpace. We blow them out of the water. If we don't quite get it right, we still did something. We're Netscape. Netscape was a commercial failure, but they created JavaScript, the cookie, and the web certificate. Our, we're still using those today, man. There you go. Great point. So, exactly. So the foundations that we lay, these academic papers, the code, will transform our entire industry one way or another. So what is your thoughts? You mentioned Uncle V, right? You're going to give him some more users. What do you think about Bitcoin Cash and Ethereum, you know, basically becoming not one, so to speak, but Ethereum utilizing Bitcoin Cash to kind of help the scalability? I know you're going to have a great opinion on this one, so I got to hear it. <laughs> no, I, you know, I really don't. I, I, you know, really? You know, the thing about the Ethereum community is that it's, it's a frustrating community because actually there are a lot of nice, wonderful people in it, and they mean very well. And they're just brilliant. There's lots of brilliant people in the Ethereum community are doing interesting, cool things. And if you sit down, have beer with them, talk to them face-to-face, great conversation. But there's also just a huge wave of arrogance in some case in the Ethereum community and this presumption. And, and you know, they really don't like me. If you go into Ethereum stuff and you say Charles Hoskins, and that's like, you know, mentioning Satan to Christians or, you know, they're <laughs> like, get away. So it's hard for me to interface there. It's hard for me to have a relationship there. You know, everybody has a side in the matter. But even little things that would have empathy, like the MetaMask incident, where, 
you know, we were releasing Icarus, which led to Uroi. And two days before we were prepared to release Icarus, MetaMask gets delisted from the, quorum, the Chrome web store. So I reach out to the MetaMask guys. I don't have their fucking emails. You know, uh, you know I, it's just a small team. I just reach out to them like I reach out to all the people over Twitter. And I say something very simple. Hey, uh, guys, can you DM me? We need to have a talk. And they say, please use the support email. And I'm thinking to myself, like, come on, guy. I'm in Vietnam at the time. I'm sick. I'm not feeling well. And I reply you know back. Who I am? <laughs> exactly. I'm just like, look, if Joe Lumen or Vitalik can send this to you, you would reply back. Give me that right, you bastards. Come on. You know, this you know exactly what I do, who I am. I created Ethereum Classic with a bunch of other people. I helped create Ethereum, create Cardano. For the love of God, you know, give me my due. Yeah. You know, yeah, so I've been in this space a long time, and I'm not here to talk about the weather. If I'm PMing you over Twitter, I'm doing this because I have a real legitimate concern and question. And there's not many CEOs in this space that do stuff. There's maybe, what, 15 or 20 that are doing significant things. So if one of those people in that circle is sending you something, it's something you pay attention to. And I was just giving it a little kick in the ass. Most people would be reasonable about it. And, and they'd see it from that perspective. But no, the Ethereum community took this and they turned it into the fucking meme of the year. There were goddamn Daenerys Targaryen, you know, <laughs> my face had her hair, saying, I'm Charles Hoskinson, breaker of chains and all this stuff. And they still have, do you know who I am t-shirts? I was in New York, someone had the Charles Hoskinson, do you know who I am? Hey, you know, at this point, just, just lean into it. Exactly, <laughs> just, right? just start every sentence with, don't you know who I am? <laughs> yeah, I've become like the Leroy Jenkins, right? You just, you just, have, to, you just have to own it. Just um, but, lean in. <laughs> but, but that's my point. It's, it's, it's a frustrating thing with that community because they, you know, they don't really care about who you are. What they do is they, they just stereotype you and then they get into this group think and they go for it. So it's been difficult for us to navigate certain edges of the Ethereum space, although other people have been very easy to work with and contact and talk to and very kind. On the Bitcoin Cash side of things, I avoided Bitcoin Cash like the plague when Craig Wright was there. I, he's, a, he's a very bad man. And you know, he's like molten tar. The closer you get to it and if it gets on you, there's no way to wash it off and it's going to burn you to the bone. So don't even get near the guy. He's very toxic. And so when they welcomed him in with open arms, I said, look, you know, until your community gets, is able to get rid of this guy, uh, you're not going to get anywhere. So now that he's gone, he's doing his own thing and they're doing their thing. There is an opportunity for Bitcoin Cash to partner and innovate. They've looked at Nipa Piles, for example, and uh, their core developers are actually pretty friendly and, and pretty easy to get along with. So, you know, if Vitalik has found a way to collaborate with BCH and they find something that's mutually beneficial, that's a good thing for the space. It means we're getting along. We're jointly working on things. We're making progress together. Stronger and together. Exactly. Unity is always better than, dis than dissent and division, uh, unless there's, you know, like something fundamentally immoral with the union. And there's nothing immoral with BCH doing things occasionally with Ethereum and, and so forth. I love the fact that Vitalik was open to it. I'm like, you know how yeah. open-minded that is? That's incredible. Right. He's a good kid. He's a very good kid. But, uh, you know, and he's grown into a very good leader. I knew him when he was very young, 19. And God, that's tough to have a whole ecosystem on your back. And the problem is that people didn't want to just treat him like a 19 year old. They wanted to treat him like the Messiah. So they basically said, hey, you know, this Vitalik person is so smart and so talented that no matter what happens, Ethereum will get to the promised land, overcome Bitcoin and become the number one cryptocurrency. And you think to yourself, wow, so where in his life story did he become the Messiah? Was that Tuesday? Was that Wednesday? No, no one does. So he had to be a god 
when he's a human. And every time he failed, the criticism is merciless and uh, the, uh, the antagonism is merciless. And he's held up very well. He's been very stoic. He's had a lot of integrity and character. You know, the other thing is that it would be very easy to cash out and just leave. I mean, you know, he's, he's at a point where he's probably fabulously wealthy. And, you know, you have to think to yourself, if you're that brilliant and talented and capable, why would you keep staying for punishment when you're crazy rich and you could go and use that money to work on any problem from CRISPR stuff to nanotechnology? But he's he wants to see it through. Yeah, he's exactly. a smart, he's a genius, you know, young man. And so uh, I think he wants to see it through. And so I'm proud of him from that respect. And, you know, I really admire his tenacity and I admire how he's been able to keep himself going and uh, push through. We, of course, have very strong differences of opinion. And, you know, he's kind of the guy that uh, made the final call to uh, push me out of Ethereum. Uh, so, you know, there was that to get over. But, you know, that's water under the bridge. Uh, IOHK is great. We're a much better company than the Ethereum Foundation. We have 200 people. We've done revolutionary research. Cardano, I believe, will be a much better product than Ethereum ever would have been. And it was the roadmap I would have done had I been the CEO Ethereum. It took a lot of rebuilding. Uh, and of course, a whole community now blatantly criticizes me because of that event, because they live in this toxic us versus them. But, you know, it, it, between Vitalik and I, it's just water under the bridge. And I admire the decisions he makes. And I, I think he's on a good road. Uh, and I think Ethereum's best days are definitely ahead of it. There's a lot of good things coming. and It's going to be fun to compete. Uh, and I hope one day, you know, Vitalik and I are able to recover the relationship that we once had. Uh, if not, I think there'll probably always be some notion of respect there. I certainly respect him. You know, I don't know about his opinion about me. We've never really talked about it, and I haven't heard it through the grapevine. He keeps his cards very close to the hip. Uh, but it's a, it's a good ecosystem from that dimension. I just think pick it Pick up the phone and call him. Yeah, pick up the phone and call your old well, buddy. I, you I, still wish him, I still wish him happy birthday from time to time. Yeah. Uh, there you go. We see yeah. each other at conferences. We've had some Reddit fights about Ouroboros, and I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> no, 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 you don't go there. But, you know, it's okay. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's a brilliant kid. He's built, you know, an incredible, you know, platform that has a lot right. of use cases. He's built an, an incredible community. And I like, the, I love the fact that uh, he's open to working with Bitcoin Cash. So I'm sure you guys will patch it up, man. Just pick up the old phone and, and call him. But uh, the real controversy in the space right now is, is Facebook. So you got Facebook yeah. with LibraCoin that's coming in and you got all the politicians Here, going. Here's what Libra did. Here's what Libra did. Okay. So I had a friend say, oh, they kicked the hornet's nest. And I said, no, 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 no. They, they didn't kick the hornet's nest. No. Mark Zuckerberg coated himself in honey. He went naked, covered <laughs> in honey into a bear cave. He just found the bear cup. He picked it up and shook it until it cries in front of the bear mother and, and and that's what he did. So the only thing I'll say about LibraCoin is run, honey man, run. <laughs> <laughs> honey man, dude, that is a great T-shirt and meme. Run, honey yeah, man. Yeah, you're gonna see you're gonna see a honey covered Mark Zuckerberg with a bear cub running, and he's gonna run as fast as he can because that bear is the United States and it's U.S. dollar. Don't fuck with the dollar. That's what killed Gaddafi. It's what killed a lot of people. And you know we don't fuck with the dollar. We play in the developing world. We do our thing. And you know there's a lot of magical things we can do there. We can make a lot of people wealthy in that world. But the U.S. dollar is its own thing. And unless you've got a China-sized army or a Russia-sized army, you're you're not going to have a good time uh, playing with those guys. And the problem with these Silicon Valley guys is Obama let them all in during his administration from Reed Hoffman on down, and he got them into believing that they actually have a real seat at the table of power. And to a certain extent, they do. They have enormous power through their platforms. But they tend to forget that there's a level above them, and that level is the U.S. dollar, and there's other things that are related to that with the banking system. 
And as long as they stay out of that, they're allowed to live in their little fiefdoms. That's like the barony, right? But there's the king. And now Zuckerberg is taking a step up and, and he's legitimately actually trying to do something that could have an impact on the dollar. And uh, if that occurs, it's, it's not going to be good for Facebook. It's not going to be good for them. It's going to be a war. I, it remains to be seen who, who wins. But I, if I had to put money down, I'm going to put money down on the, the, the side that has, you know, stealth <laughs> Black Hawk helicopters and Navy SEALs. That can what show happened to that Mark Zuckerberg guy? Where'd he go? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. You know, they're going to find, they're going to find something in his history. You know, the, 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 if you look at the way he drinks water, you always wonder like, ah, <laughs> there might be something in that backstory there. <laughs> they found or manufactured to make him less appealing. Uh, so that's all I'll say about Libra. And, uh, you know, I wish him well. I think it's a great event for the industry. It really is forcing some uncomfortable conversations that, frankly, do need to be had. Uh, and it will eventually get us to a point where cryptocurrencies gain more mainstream adoption and legitimacy. Uh, you know, and there has, somebody had to be the person who was going to coat themselves naked in honey and run with the bear cup. <laughs> and Mark Zuckerberg is the guy to do it. So uh, the only thing we as an industry can say is run, honey man, run. And... <laughs> You know, just move on with it and like, like see what happens. And, you know, he might win. He might get away with the bear cup. It's like, like, wow, that's how much you run. Well, he does so, have a three billion person army and yeah. basically endless resources. And I think so far they're crafting this bill to where it only costs him a million dollars a day in fines if he was to actually launch without a money transmitter license. So in theory, that wouldn't even be a slap on the wrist for him. But yeah, it's, it's like a home in Bel Air. You know, it's like, you know, it's, it's like a nice private jet, you know, it's like, he's fine. He, he'll do fine. But, you know, on the other hand, uh, they can do things like say, hey, that's a nice platform you have here. It'd be really unfortunate if we put some sort of fairness doctrine into it, make it like some sort of government utility and, you know, force you to, uh, to like monitor every message and user. Yeah, it'd be really unfortunate if we did something like that, start treating you like a utility or something. Like There's all these things they can do, like really fuck Mark Zuckerberg up if they, if they wanted to. Uh, it's just, uh, it's just a, you know, the political prerogative and it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican. I, I remember being part of the Ron Paul movement and just trying to get the, the audit, the fed through, we almost got every damn congressman to agree to do that. Yet somehow it didn't happen. And it was just a GAO audit. So we're like, guys, it's an audit. It happens all the time. I get audited. You get audited. Banks get audited. Uh, businesses get audited. Shouldn't the organization that manufactures our money occasionally have an audit? <laughs> and, you know, Don't and, the man behind the curtain. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> and that's, somehow that didn't happen, right? And it was bipartisan, despite the fact that we had overwhelming public support and congressional support. So, you know, when the minute you start tinkering with the money, there, there really is something behind that curtain that is very terrifying and scary. Kennedy, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, let's not go down that one. Anyway, this has been a hell of a lot of fun. I got to jump into another meeting. So thank you so much for your time. I love this interview. It was a lot of fun. Thanks a bunch, man. Take care Cheers. and God bless. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Hey, you saw when Charles is done, he is done. He just, I have another appointment and he's gone. <laughs> but what did you guys think of Run, Honey, Man, Run? I thought that was pretty funny. You know, everything from him sipping on water to Run, Honey, Man, Run. <laughs> Good old Zuckerberg fighting our fight for us and maybe taking the bullet for us. Who knows? But uh, it was a great talk. I had a lot of fun, you know, listening to Charles talk and hearing his different take on things. So just a friendly reminder, Crypto Beatles shows are never financial advice, recommendations, or trading strategies. The views expressed here are solely that of Robert Beatles and his guests. Robert Beatles is a co-founder of the Monarch Wallet. 
host of TradingView Sessions, Crypto Beatles on YouTube, and on several entities. Robert's opinions here do not reflect that of those entities. Some information shared here may not actually be factual. These shows are for information and entertainment purposes only. Never invest a single Satoshi or penny in anything without first seeking the counsel and advice of a professional financial advisor. Robert Beatles is not a financial expert or advisor. Investing in anything is super dangerous. You can lose all of your money, so always trade at your own risk. Please help us grow the family. Give us a comment and review on the Apple or Google Play Store. It's super quick and easy. Just scroll down, click the little stars, comment, and just help us grow the family. Love you. God bless you. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you on the next one.